Thank you. Well, once again, uh, welcome to the third of our lunchtime Equip Ministry Week seminars in the uh, general area of conflict resolution and under the particular title inspired by the proverb, how to wound friends and influence people. And our topic today is forgiving one another. We've had correcting one another, uh, bearing with one another, and today forgiving one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we pray, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to act upon it. For Christ, your Son, our Saviour's sake. Amen. What well, is the well-known fact that the Lord Jesus taught his followers to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus put that line right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. It says, number one, that we need God's forgiveness, and number two, we need to forgive others. And Jesus clearly thinks we need to keep praying about those two things. Now, some time ago, and it is quite some time ago now, I visited an elderly churchgoer in hospital. She was lonely and sad, and so as I often do, we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. But she then spent the rest of our conversation complaining and, in fact, being rude to the lady in the next bed. Now, it was obvious to me her neighbour was also lonely, but my parishioner saw her as a busybody. She was upset about her nosiness to our conversation. And I can understand that. And it perhaps can be excused as an irrationality caused by creeping dementia. But the contradiction of praying the Lord's Prayer followed immediately by angry rudeness to your neighbour, well, it did stand out to me. And all our conflict resolution skills, all our diplomatic rebukes, all our apologies will be for nothing if we can't get forgiveness right. What does it mean to be forgiven? How can we forgive when it hurts? Let's unpack forgiveness today. But understand that from God's point of view, forgiveness will involve some crazy mathematics that may puzzle an accountant, at least the bean counter type of accountant. And so we return to the chapter of the Bible that we began this series with. It's Matthew chapter 18, and it brings us a theme of, and it's point one in my outline, unlimited forgiveness. I'm reading from verse 21, which speaks to this extent of forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, we often think of Peter as Mr. Foot in Mouth. But credit, he has learnt Jesus thinks it's important to forgive. Uh, just before, in chapter 18, as we saw two days ago, Jesus spoke about 
true conflict resolution with reconciliation as its aim. But here Peter thinks there does have to be some limits on to forgiveness. Uh, Peter's not naive, like you, I guess he knows what it is to be hurt, and so he inquires about the reasonable benefits limit that comes with forgiveness. As they say in the superannuation fund world, how far can you go before the uh, forgiveness is off the table? But he thinks he's in a generous mood. He suggests seven times. And that was more than double the consensus back then because typically the rabbis said, forgive someone three times. No forgiveness after a fourth offense. So Jesus' reply in verse 22 really upends Peter's thinking. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And of course, you miss the point if you think it's saying you can get away with speeding 77 times, but the policeman really should ping you with a fine on the 78th occasion. Now, Jesus is telling Peter, forgiveness is not about spiritual bean counting. It's not about scoring up the number of wrongs you've endured. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5? Love keeps no record of wrongs from last Sunday. You've missed the point if you think forgiveness is all about calculating reasonable risks for how far you can go with another person. Jesus is saying that forgiving cannot be limited by the frequency of the other's sins. And he explains why in the parable that follows. But here it is in a summary. God has forgiven every single Christian far more than a Christian will ever have to forgive in others. If that was too much for you to write down, someone much cleverer has said, forgiven sinners forgive sins. Forgiven sinners forgive sins. Well, the first part of the parable, and this is my second point now, it's intended to underline just how much we have been forgiven by God. We are forgiven much. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags or talents of gold was brought to him. Jesus is making a comparison between God and the king in his story. And he reminds us that there'll be a day of reckoning. There'll be a day of judgment, of settling accounts. In the story, the king is running an audit on his servants. And these perhaps are senior servants, the chief financial officers of his various businesses. Perhaps they were the tax farmers who'd won the contract to collect taxes in the different regions of the king's uh, monarchy. And now they have to cough up the contract price they'd agreed. The details don't really matter. The point is that this man had an unrepayable debt. He is bankrupt. A talent, uh, what they've now translated as a bag of gold, a talent was the largest measure of weight in the ancient Middle East. King David, you might remember the Chronicle series, some of you who heard it, King David donated 10,000 talents 
of precious metal to build a temple. So we are talking here about the sort of money it costs to build a public monument like our Sydney Opera House. So putting it in today's terms, we're talking multi, multi millions, maybe even a billion bucks. And we are supposed to see this debt as a picture of our moral bankruptcy before God. Our sins run up an unrepayable debt to God because all sin in the end is primarily a sin against God. You know, King David hurt many people when he lied and he cheated his way to adultery and then to a successful conspiracy to murder as a cover-up. He hurt many people. But when he confessed his sins in Psalm 51, he surprisingly but famously said it was, quote, against you, you only God have I sinned, which is a way of saying that Christians believe that regardless of the size of the impact on others, sin is first and foremost an act of rebellion against an infinitely moral and majestic God. Now in Jesus' story, in verse 25, the bankruptcy, the inability to pay, sees the king punish the debtor. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Imprisoning debtors was a common way in the ancient world of dealing with loan defaulters in many cultures. It stops people running away to dodgy tax havens to dodge their debts. Uh, a sale into a debtor's prison might allow you to recoup some of your losses because it gave the incentive to the relatives to try and repay the debt owed so they could get their loved one let free. Of course, in this case, selling the man and his family into slavery wouldn't really go close to meeting his gigantic liability. This man, I think, was simply being punished for his offence. He'd run up a huge debt. He would pay a huge penalty as a consequence. He's going to lose everything, even his family. Justice is no use to him now. So in verse 26, look what he goes for. He asks for mercy. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. He asks for more time. He wants the king to throw him a lifeline. Now give me mercy, even though it's a crazy repayment scheme he proposes. But he's so desperate, he's promising to deliver what he cannot possibly do, the repayment of a billion-dollar black hole. And it's now that we get, in verse 27, to the heart of the story with its insight into God's character. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. This king is merciful, pitiful, compassionate. He does far more than is asked. He doesn't just give time to pay, does he? That was unrealistic. He gives him debt 
cancellation instead. And so verse 27, uh, as a subheading on your outline, helps us define forgiveness. The base meaning of the actual Greek word translated as forgive means to let go. It means to release. And the word was often used in the context of debt cancellation. Forgiveness is tearing up the moral debt owed to you by the person who wronged you. It's not giving them time to pay. It's not about making them pay you back. It's not even about punishing them for the failure to do so. Now, sometimes there is a literal debt or penalty for which you can demand payment. Other times we, we kind of demand people make it up to us some other way, you know, get back in my good books. Sometimes we punish them by lashing back, by gossiping about their failures, by being cold and distant. That's what they deserve. It's what their conduct earned. Or you can forgive. You inwardly cancel their debt. You release it. And so you decide not to punish them formally or informally. And this definition, the release of debt, if we can agree on it, well, it clears up some common myths of forgiveness. Because sometimes people think forgiveness is mainly a feeling where somehow we've got to feel better about the person who hurt us. But although forgiveness is connected to our feelings, it is not itself a feeling. For example, we may well decide to forgive a person their transgression and yet still find we struggle with sadness or anger over what's happened. And forgiveness is not just forgetting. Forgetting is a passive process where something just fades over the process of time. Forgiveness is an active process involving a deliberate decision to release a debt. Now, I know we often say forgive and forget. Uh, and you could even quote to me Isaiah 43 and verse 25, where God says to his people that he remembers your sins no more. But clearly here, the all-knowing God is not admitting to some kind of amnesia. He's not saying he cannot remember your sins. What he is promising is that he will not call them to mind. He will not bring them back to use against you. Because the parallel part of that verse in Isaiah says he blots out your transgressions. And I think we can see here forgiving means choosing not to dwell on the offence caused by the other person, to release it. Of course, this can be really hard if the memories are painful. But also at this point, see that forgiveness is not excusing. Excusing someone means saying something like, oh, look, that's okay. I guess it wasn't really so bad. Or, you know, you couldn't help it. That's excusing. But forgiveness takes honesty. It says, actually, what you did was wrong. It was inexcusable, but I'm absorbing the cost myself and I forgive you. 
You see, God doesn't just excuse our sins. He doesn't say, oh, your sins don't really matter. Actually, he absorbs the cost. He says the sin, our sin matters so much, it took his son to the cross. Well, clearly I'm saying the first servant's debt in Matthew 18 is a picture of the forgiveness we have through trusting Christ. In his son's death on the cross, God absorbed the penalty for us. And so we are freed from the judgment. Romans 6 and verse 23 famously says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, friends, this parable says every Christian has been forgiven a billion dollar debt. So to our third point, forgiven sinners must forgive. That's the expectation Jesus sets up by this master, this king's divine act of mercy. Now, sadly, it's not always how it works out in real life as Jesus' parable illustrates in verse 28. But when that forgiven servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, a denarius was the pay for a day's labour. Uh, that's the silver coin here. So the second servant's debt of 100 silver coins, the 100 denarii, is about, I'm guessing, $20,000 worth in today's terms, $200 a day. Maybe it's more now. I don't know what the daily pay rate is, but... You can see why the man was anxious about that sum of money. $20,000 is not a debt to be sneezed at. But it fades into insignificance against the debt he'd been forgiven. There was 1,000 denarii to one talent. And so do the maths. This debt is one one hundred thousandth of his debt to the king or point naught point naught naught one percent so when the second servant begs for mercy in verse 29 don't we expect a little compassion see what happens his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him be patient with me and i will pay it back his words echo exactly what the first servant begged from the king in verse 26. But the response in verse 30 is the complete opposite from the king. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So this first servant's attitude is appalling. He will not extend the same gift that was extended to him. He will not even give time to pay. This is the height of ingratitude. In verse 31, the other servants were distressed by the inconsistency they'd witnessed and told their master all that had happened. And verses 32 and 3 show how greatly this unforgiving attitude, this unforgiving ingratitude 
angered the king. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all this debt, that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? If you have put your trust in Jesus, think how much you've been forgiven by God. All that debt. Jim Packer said, there can be no small sins against a great God. And so true Christians know that those who receive God's amazing grace should act with that grace to others. The flip side is that Jesus describes a refusal to have mercy on a fellow debtor as wickedness. Unforgiveness grieves God's heart. Verse 34 says, it will be judged. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. I don't think that we need to reason from this illustration some conclusion that God plans to torture sinners. I think the simple point to take is that a final punishment comes for those who persist in refusal to forgive. So Jesus is implying pretty clearly that if we refuse to forgive others, then we have not understood forgiveness ourselves. Because the only reason, the only reason I can think why the servant demands to be paid back the much smaller debt is because he didn't really listen. Back in verse 27, it said that the master cancelled his debt. Remember, he wasn't just given time to pay, but complete debt cancellation. But this servant seems to be acting as if he still thinks he's got to pay back the king. And so he never actually received the forgiveness for what it was. Well, Jesus draws his conclusion in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Followers of Jesus must forgive others. And it says we must do it from the heart. And if we refuse to forgive others, we are inviting God to withhold his forgiveness from us. Now, and this is a sub point on the outline, this raises the question, the difficult question of whether forgiveness is unconditional. Do we have to forgive someone if they won't even admit they've done the wrong thing? What if they don't seem at all sorry? In a church where I served as a student minister, there was a young lady who'd been, sorry to raise a difficult topic, sexually abused by her stepfather. And some well-meaning Christians in that church kept urging her to forgive him. This caused great distress because her stepdad would not even admit he'd done anything wrong. Now this young lady actually seemed remarkably free of bitterness to me, though she was, I think, uh, for want of a better phrase, screwed up in other ways. But 
to offer forgiveness didn't make any sense to her and I can see why. Someone needed to be forthright about that man's crimes and it was a terribly insensitive thing to say to her, you've just got to forgive him. Even though it seems to echo what we've been reading. At times like those, my mind has often turned to Luke 17 and verse 3. Luke 17 and verse 3. Let me read it for you. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Do you see that? If they repent. This seems to imply you need not forgive if there's no repentance first. And that's why I'm reluctant to command a victim to forgive in the face of a refusal to repent. But I must admit, the more I've thought on Luke 17 and verse 3, the less I think it's a proof text to make forgiveness conditional because of the context. Luke 17, 1 and 2 says it's a really terrible situation facing a person who causes other people to sin. People like that person need forgiveness really badly. And so verse 3 is saying, if that's what they need, rebuke them so they have a chance to repent. But the context also implies that we find it really hard to forgive. That's what verse 4 goes on to get at when it echoes the seven times thing the repeated sin of Matthew 18. You see verse 4 there? Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So Luke 17, 3 and 4 isn't really answering a question directly about the conditions under which we may or may not forgive. Once again, its main point is to suggest that Christian forgiveness knows no limits. It should occur regardless of the size or quantity of a sin. In fact, verse 4 is illustrating, isn't it, that even a repentance which seems shallow and inadequate because the bloke keeps on doing the same sin again and again in the same day, even that should be forgiven, even a repentance that you might suspect might just be lip service. Now, yes, we know that forgiveness is not automatic with God. We need to ask him. But we remember in asking that in the death of Jesus, God had already done everything needed to make it possible before we even thought of asking. In fact, when is our own repentance to God ever fully adequate? When could our sorrow for sin ever really be sufficient. Our repentance is certainly not a work we do to contribute to our salvation, not a bit of it. And so I want to say it's probably not good to get worked up trying to mind read over whether or not another person is truly, sincerely sorrowful 
or quibbling about whether they're sufficiently repentant toward us. Still, I think it is often pastorally helpful to draw a distinction between a forgiving spirit where you can pray even for your enemies, as Jesus once said, and forgiveness as a completed relational transaction or what we might call reconciliation. The latter, the reconciliation, the forgiveness as a transaction, cannot come without repentance. But a forgiving spirit can still be displayed. I really think the big take home is to realize that forgiven sinners will always want to work towards forgiving sins. Now, C.S. Lewis once put it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And right here in Matthew 18 and elsewhere, Jesus teaches this without allowing us lots of easy escape hatches. Well, we've been forgiven so much through Christ's death, we must be willing to forgive others. But friends, I don't, I don't for a moment pretend this is easy. And so thirdly on your outline, I offer a few practicalities of forgiveness. And I'm basing it on Ken Sandy's Four Promises of Forgiveness. I find them very helpful. I'll, uh, I'll list them for you twice. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring this incident up again to use against you. The full sentence is needed there. I will not bring this incident up again to use against you. Number three, I will not talk to others unnecessarily about this incident. I will not talk to others unnecessarily about this incident. And number four, I'll not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I won't let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Of course, you can find Ken Sandy's Four Promises of Forgiveness in the book that I've recommended at the bottom of the outline. But it's as the poet says in Psalm 130, verses 3 to 4, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And how good it is to experience that. When, when you have stuffed up, maybe you've stuffed up repeatedly, or maybe you've just really stuffed up big time this time. And someone like your boss or, or your wife says they forgive you. And, and you are just waiting for them to bring it up again. You are just waiting for them to hold it over your head, perhaps, you know, when you, when you do fail again. And instead, they just keep on acting kindly towards you, 
no cold shoulder, just warmth, and they never mention it again. How good is that? Well, do note carefully some important footnotes to these four promises. Ken Sandy says they should never be used rigidly or mechanically. For example, that second promise says, I'll not bring the incident up again and use it against you. Do you see that this is not meant to prevent a person honestly or humbly encouraging another person to address a recurring pattern of sin? That would, be, that would be offering the wounds of a friend, wouldn't it, from talk one? Imagine someone keeps losing their temper. You've been a target in the past and they've apologised and you've forgiven, but it's happened again. Maybe it's against someone else. And so sometimes you may need to point out the ongoing pattern to urge him to get help to deal with his underlying anger issues. If all you are allowed to do under this four promises scheme is only mention the last incident, he may be able to brush that one off. And so bringing up his past here, I don't think is breaking the second promise because you're not using it against him, but for his good to encourage him to reflect deeper for a deeper change and a deeper growth. But that second promise is saying there should be a compelling reason before you bring something up again. What about consequences? In forgiveness, you promise not to let the offence stand between you or hinder your personal relationship with the person. But I, I must say, other consequences might remain this side of heaven. So to take a very obvious example, a Christian minister may be forgiven for adultery, but the consequence is he no longer possesses the biblical requirement of a reputation that is above reproach. And so public leadership ministry, I think is no longer available to him, though he is personally forgiven. Or a church treasurer embezzles church funds to feed a gambling addiction. The church members may forgive the breach of trust, but they may also seek some attempt at repayment as part of repentance. But even if you forego repayment as unrealistic, legal consequences may remain. That treasurer may be barred from holding such an office in your organisation. He might lose his professional society membership rights. In the case of abuse, as I said in the other talks, we have responsibilities to report abuse to the authorities. We should never cover it up. And that means in such a case, true repentance for an offender will mean their understanding they must submit to the necessary legal consequences. And in such situations, it will not be safe or appropriate to expect any sort of close relationship with the offender, even if they are repentant. So for example, a man who is a domestic abuser needs to confront the evidence that such behavior is almost always a very entrenched behavior uh, 
And it's not just a matter of him saying, it won't happen again. Repentance for that man will mean accepting that he needs to undergo, for example, a very extensive treatment pay program, a behaviour modification program, and he certainly can't just expect, let alone demand, that he be allowed to return home. Philip Yancey reports the heat of an argument he had with his wife. This is my conclusion. She was discussing his failings and she said, I quote, I think it's pretty amazing that I forgive you for some of the dastardly things you've done. <laughs> he writes, what struck me about her comment was its sharp insight into the nature of forgiveness. It is no sweet ideal to be sprayed into the world like air freshener from a can. Forgiveness is achingly difficult and long after you've forgiven, the wounds live on in memory. Forgiveness is an unnatural act and my wife was protesting its blatant unfairness. It is so easy to see my sins as run of the mill. You know, my busy indifference, my impatient speech, oh, a spot of pride or prayerlessness. Those are merely 100 denarii sins. And it's so easy to assume that my sin is not as bad as my wife's or kids' failures, my work colleagues' incompetence, my neighbours' deceit or selfishness and the very, frankly, very wicked people we see on TV. So easy to tally their repeated failures as much closer to the talent weight of debt. Friends, if you find yourself going down that route, you're in danger of missing the lessons of Matthew 18. Because what's really amazing is not what dastardly deeds we might have forgiven a boss or a neighbour or even a family member or spouse. And there have been some truly awful abuses perpetrated. But what's really amazing, even more amazing, is how much God has forgiven us. We must keep seeing ourselves in the shoes of the 10,000 talent debtor. We all need someone to stand between us and the justified wrath of God. We all need the Father's forgiveness. And so we all need the Saviour's sacrifice of atonement. But if we are going to claim that wonderful forgiveness through Jesus' cross, then we must remember that forgiven sinners forgive sins. And in the end, it's only on this foundation that conflicts 
will be resolved or that as a friend we will offer wounds that can be trusted. A moment to pause and to reflect and then there will be a chance uh, either via the chat comment or just here in the cathedral to give some feedback uh, in the form of a question or a statement. So, uh, okie dokes, let's, uh, let's see if there are any questions or comments. Stacey, if you're reading them out, can you just remove your mask? It makes it a bit easier. Thanks. I'll repeat that for uh, the podcast. Uh, forgiveness, appreciate the point, the forgiveness means absorbing the costs, um, releasing the other person from the costs, absorbing yourself just as Christ did on the cross. Thank you. And something else, Stacey? Uh, the question was how much evidence of repentance is needed in order to forgive? So remembering, um, if you like, my distinction between the forgiving spirit uh, um, the, the, the in principle willingness, uh, the forbearing attitude, the loving even of enemies by at least praying for them and uh, not seeking to do them harm but good. Well, no evidence of repentance at that point. You can offer the forgiving spirit, the forbearing heart, the love of enemies to those who remain as enemies. It doesn't mean you have to be friends with them, but it means that you'd act for their welfare, not for their... Um, disaster. But in terms of forgiveness, as I termed it, as a relational transaction, how much evidence of repentance do you want? Uh, I think my talk was designed to say that you uh, want to have a willingness to ex uh, a, a, a willingness and a readiness to accept expressions of repentance. So when uh, Luke seventeen three and four suggested that they come back. They commit the same thing several times in a short space of time and they keep saying sorry. Well, Jesus is saying it will be good to forgive them. And I, I presume in brackets we could read there, even though it looks like their repentance is shallow. Now, I don't think, again, that necessarily means that you therefore, you know, if it's someone who's abused you, that you just stay alone with privately with them and expose yourself to danger necessarily. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 or 7, let me look it up so I don't mislead you. Uh, in chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul draws a distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. So let me read 2 Corinthians 7 and verses 
8 onwards. Uh, evidently, Paul has offered the wounds of a friend, a correction. He writes, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, the wounds of a friend might hurt, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so weren't harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this manner, matter. Now it's hard to tell. I don't think he's saying, oh, after all, it turns out you didn't do anything wrong. But it is saying, uh, he, clearly he had something wrong to correct, but their response has been right. It's been truly repentant. And that response has involved uh, eagerness to see justice done, uh, eagerness to clear yourself. I take it to do the right thing in the follow-up, uh, um, concern, alarm, uh, and evidently it's produced demonstrable change. That's the kind of repentance we ought to be showing. It, John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And he mentioned things like repaying and not taking more than is your right and so on. Zacchaeus, when he repented, uh, offered to um, give a uh, payback any, uh, four times over uh, what he cheated and to give to the poor in addition. Um, and so repentance ought to lead to actions, demonstrable, persistent ev actions that can be evidenced over time. That's true repentance. But that's from the repenter. But as the forgiver, the encouragement is to be ready and willing to forgive, as it were, at the first signs. And then there's a wisdom in the way you relate to the person um, as perhaps they struggle. I mean, when we're spelling out principles like this, we sort of maybe not doing it in black and white, but we're speaking in the theory. We all know life is messy as they struggle to live out their repentance, perhaps with some mistakes and failures and fallbacks. You know, there's a wisdom in how you express your love to them, uh, how you treat them appropriately, and maybe how you uh, seek to ensure that others and perhaps yourselves are protected especially if there is danger or an power imbalance. But nevertheless, the willingness to repent, shouldn't, uh, to, to forgive, shouldn't be dependent on waiting for someone to sort of set, you know, get a, a uh, you know, 4.9 out of 5 degree of difficulty performance. Um, that's what I think.
Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so the comments about people who use the Bible uh, to excuse their unrepentant behaviour, a man who is abusive and says you've just got to submit to me, that, that's just a, a misuse of scriptures and it should be brought to the attention of the church leaders. And likewise, the person who is demonstrably not repenting but keeping on offending, it should be brought to the relevant authorities. I think at that point what we're talking about is that um, uh, there, are, there, is, there is civil and church discipline. And we talked about that in the first talk when we corrected one another. We don't want to rush to get to the, the third or rather the fourth stage, you know, personal with others, with the whole church and no repentance, right? We treat you as a tax collector, as an unconverted person. We withdraw your membership privileges. Um, that should happen if, if someone keeps on, you know, beating, beating their wife. Um, cheating on their wife uh, or their husband, um, that, that, that should and can happen if uh, that's drawn to the church, church leadership's attention. Um, again, the precise way that's worked out will depend on lots and lots of factors, including those involved and whatever other, you know, denominational rules might be in play and so on, but yeah. Uh, I think at that point, what, what we're saying is it's not the individual responsible for personally doing the, the punishment or the consequences, as it were. Um, it's, it's done uh, in fellowship. A person might take personal steps to secure safety. The Bible, the Proverbs say it's wise and right to flee for refuge in the case of danger. Proverbs repeat that point. Um, and yeah, your, your love may be expressed from a distance at that point. Comments in the cathedral? Thank you. You can take the mask off while you comment. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great uh, question and comment. And I think we did touch on it on the first of the lectures, uh, correcting one another. Under that, I used the phrase that is a bit of a buzzword phrase, triangulation, you know, a triangle with the three sides. Um, because the, the founding principle of the first talk was deal direct with the person who has upset you. Try and sort it out between the two of you, just two people directly uh, where, where it's not unsafe to do so, deal directly. And it's very difficult 
when instead of dealing directly, one person goes to the third party and says, you sort it out, and that third person doesn't really know all the situation, and it can be very, very messy to be pushed into that situation. And so someone who's being asked, especially just by one party, you know, sort it out, um, wants to be very careful about how they go about doing it. And probably I can't give you know, specific advice um, in this situation, uh, but I think that um, you'd be wanting to avoid the triangulation when both parties are just simply going like, like that. Now, there is, in the um, professional world, we talk about mediation and conciliation and arbitration where third parties generally who have been professionally trained and there is Christian training in mediation and conciliation and arbitration and there's secular training that's often quite good also um, they will have skills to minimize the risks in that sort of thing and uh, sometimes uh, mature church leaders mature Christians can be helpful um, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, that in Matthew 18 and verse 15, uh, verse 16, uh, it says, if they will not listen, take one or two others along. Now, I'm wondering there if it's helpful to have the two others, not the one other. That is, you've got a, a couple of people involved, not just one person sort of expected to work all the magic. Um, that 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 could be helpful um yeah it's it's a difficult difficult situation yeah 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 so sometimes these circumstances yeah no sometimes the results will be unsatisfying and there won't be reconciliation there won't be forgiveness as a completed transaction all you are left with is your choice to act in love of someone who treats you like an enemy praying for them for uh, the forgiving spirit um, whether as the third party or directly involved sometimes life will be unsatisfying the person just leaves church or leaves relationship with you and it's it's difficult um, and nevertheless you can offer the forgiving spirit even if the practical outworking of that can't go very far stacy Oh, good question. So when either the offender or the offended party has passed away without the opportunity for the other party to work through this stuff, either to offer their apology and repentance or to uh, um, uh, seek the offender 
offer forgiveness to the offender, seek the offender's repentance and look for reconciliation. Again, that's unsatisfying. It's a bit like the person who just disappears in life and you're stuck. Uh, the Psalms are a great resource because they can tell us that we can cry out to God with our feelings, our frustrations, our anger, our disappointment with enemies, our questions about those who have mistreated us, and we can take them to God. And so I think that means we, at the very least, can take our distress about uh, uncompleted business, business, unfinished business to God. Uh, I've heard over the years that some uh, psychologists um, or, you know, practitioners in this kind of area will talk about, you know, um, kind of symbolically offering it up, you know, saying what you wanted to say even though the person is no longer here on earth to say it. Um, and I can, can understand that. I, I'm, I'm not sure that it actually, well, I don't think it actually achieves the relational transaction being completed because the person isn't really there. It's, in a sense, it's a pretending, but I can understand how it might be part of the, as it were, working through your feelings. I do remember um, um, a pastor, a pastoral student with me at Moore College who said that the Maori custom was to leave the deceased, um, they didn't just sort of, you know, put them in the uh, funeral parlour and then bury them. They would leave the deceased uh, appropriately, I guess, embalmed or whatever, whatever the right word is, on the front veranda of their house and people could come by and say, you know, you rotten so-and-so, you never paid me back or, um, you know, you, you know, I never got to tell you how much I loved you or, or whatever. And so I can understand the kind of therapeutic value of it, um, but ultimately we'd have to stay it's still incomplete, isn't it? It's not the same satisfying as if the person is there. So there's possibilities and you can always talk to God. Last question, Stacey. Good question. Um, so sometimes there is um, question of hurt and there's not an agreement on actually what what the impact of what was done is um, people you know kind of agree to disagree or maybe don't even agree to disagree but they disagree uh, do see talk one do listen to talk one on uh, I think it was talk one uh, on uh, correcting each other and the fact that sometimes the out um, in our I think I mentioned in our diocesan grievance policy with unacceptable behaviour, sometimes the result of this kind of process, you know, raising it directly, talking it over, trying the help of a, other people, sometimes the result will be an apology. The person sees the impact of what they've done and apologises to you and forgiveness can flow and that's wonderful. But sometimes our grievance policy says the outcome will be while maybe not still agreeing with the behavior action greater insight that helps you at least understand why they did what they did or what what their intention was with what they did that's a that may be a less than fully satisfying outcome but it may be an outcome of 
what we might call greater insight. It's frustrating, but there is the possibility of some insight and understanding, even if not full agreement. Sometimes, of course, um, you are you know, disagreeing as you disagree um, and it still hurts. And so at that point, you go back to the forgiving spirit, forgiveness as a relational transaction. The reconciliation you're seeking is impaired, but you can still offer the forgiving spirit. You can pray for them. You can love them, that is, act for their good and welfare, um, even though you're not satisfied fully with how they're treating you. Um, and that, you know, see earlier in the talk, he, you know, sometimes there will be safety issues, sometimes there will be consequences, but um, the forgiving spirit, the forbearing attitude is still available to you. I think that needs to finish things up. Um, in fact, it does because I've got some other obligations to come. Uh, I'm going to pray and thank you. Well, I'll pray first. Heavenly Father, um, the questions themselves demonstrate as the talk also explored how difficult forgiveness is, how much hurt, how much frustration, how much difficulty in good communication, how, how hard insight into ourselves and into others can be to achieve. Uh, but we pray that we'll never lose sight of the fundamental perspective of the Lord Jesus, that we have been forgiven far, far more by you through Jesus and his sacrifice and we'll ever have to forgive in others. Um, help us to know in our head and hearts the truth of this perspective and use it by your power of your Holy Spirit to motivate us uh, to possess the willingness to forgive, the forgiving spirit and the uh, openness towards releasing debts uh, wherever possible. Um, we pray uh, for uh, our safety and well-being in all these things, uh, and we pray we'd be able to stand before you as continued recipients of your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, everyone, for um, your engagement with the series. Uh, the podcast will be up there to... Uh,